Hi, everybody. This is Adam Lippard, Chief Partnerships Officer with GMR Marketing, and you're listening to One-on-One with ADC Partners. Hi, this is Dave Almy of ADC Partners. I'm a capitalist, but I also have a conscience. That was written by this episode's guest, Adam Lippert, after he returned from the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. And they really cut to the heart of the internal conflict he experienced during that event. Adam is the chief partnership officer for GMR Marketing, one of the biggest and most consequential experiential marketing companies in the world. And in that role, he manages sponsorships for companies at the biggest global events imaginable, including FIFA World Cups and Olympic Games. Now, those high-profile events also dredged up a number of challenging issues, like host nation human rights abuses and persecution of different communities. Issues that run head-on into Adam's values and identity. In our thoughtful and insightful conversation, Adam shares what it's like walking that capitalist conscious tightrope, and how he advises clients and employees to do the same. We also get into his extensive agency experience, how sports business has changed during his tenure, and a lot, lot more. Uh, The former budding sports broadcaster also shares the one sport he'd least like to announce. Enjoy. Adam, you've been with GMR Marketing for a little over 20 years. It's one of the most prominent sports and experiential market agencies, I think safe to say, in the world. And so, you know, I guess for a first question, what I want to ask you is, can you give a sense of both how you and the company have evolved over that period of time? Well, first of all, I never thought I would turn into my dad and be in one company for 20 years, but in a blink of an eye, there it is. Um, Gold watch time and everything. Exactly. The, you know, the thing that has been remarkable to me working in any agency is for me, variety is the spice of life. Mm. And so the opportunity to wake up each day within those 20 years and look at the email, field the client calls, see what's up. It's always a different day. And so mm. it's it keeps it fresh. Um, but you, you've asked what's changed, what's what's different. Um, I guess I could start on a personal level, I I think that there's an evolution in sort of one's capability Mm -hmm. where you have the hard intelligence and then more of the wisdom brain. Mm -hmm. And so I I like to think X number of years later, I have the the hard skill sets and the know-how and the experience in sports and entertainment. But these days it's really about trying to channel the wisdom brain and, and trying to understand what I can uniquely see that's different than what other people see. That is a lot of water that you've seen go under the bridge. So the perspective that you now bring, like you said, sort of adds on to the, the skill set that's gotten developed over the time. It just speaks to that purview, right? I, I, I think it's also calm. You said it for the front end. It's, you know, you get to this point where you're, You've been at the same agency for 20 plus years. It's just not really that common uh, practice, especially these days. You know, why do you think GMR is such a great fit for you? 
Yeah, and, and it's interesting because actually at our agency and, and some others, you, you do have senior people mm-hmm. with a lot of tenure. And and I can't speak to all other agencies. I have a admiration and a fondness for a lot of our agency competitors. And I know a lot of people that have been in this business for a long time. I think speaking from my perspective and and from the standpoint of GMR, there's longevity mm. because of the people, yeah. because of the culture and, and what we've built over so many years. And, and that also speaks uh, to your first question, really, which is how things have changed. Well, we're, we're in a constant state of evolution mm-hmm. and being in a constant state of evolution and, and particularly that evolution being supercharged by the pandemic makes a place fresh. We, we value innovation, we value creativity. And when you're in an organization that, that has those um, as values, then the name on your paycheck may be the same, but mm. the experiences year to year are different. And that also has a lot to do with our clients, which I, I believe GMR's clients are second to none. And mm-hmm. we're in a very privileged position to have the opportunity to work with such amazing brands. And when you're in a position like that, the categories in which you work and the audiences to which those brands and and categories serve, you're you're always needing to be fresh and and, and innovative in in order to meet the demands of those brands and, and their and their clients and their and their audiences or consumers. I want to ask you a quick question because you brought up the idea of culture and how, you know, it's obviously it's a constant state of evolution on that front as well. And this has come up in a couple of other conversations that I've had. Is is culture for GMR something that's developed organically? Or is this something that you collectively sit down and say, you know, here's here's who we're trying to be? And in doing so, does that shape who you chase for clients? Yeah, that's a great question. It's like three or four questions in one. And, and I'll, I'll try to, <laughs> Sorry, sorry, we'll parse no, them no, out. No, 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 it's fine. It's, I'll try to unpack <laughs> that a little bit. I, I think what an organization and what GMR does is we can be very clear in our values. Mm-hmm. And we can be very clear in the behaviors that we expect our employees, which we call story makers, mm-hmm. to exhibit in relationship to those values. Culture is a difficult one, Dave. It mm. is particularly difficult in the year 2023 when we at GMR have shifted to what we call the any place workplace experience. Okay. And if you want to jump into that, we certainly can, but it's really about the future of work and how we're working post pandemic. And and the culture at GMR is shaped by our values and it is certainly shaped by the modality in which we're working. So I don't think that management can dictate culture. I think culture is an outgrowth of values and culture is an outgrowth of the work modality and the culture is an outgrowth of the human beings Mm -hmm. that you, you have in an organization. It does bring up this fascinating point because as you know, I, I work for this massive agency uh, called ADC <laughs> called Partners. It's breathtaking in style and scope. But before that, I was working for other agencies in which so much of it is built around sort of that in-person collaboration. 
and uh, even just water cooler conversations and things like that. But you're right. I mean, the, the pandemic has brought on this absolute shift in the way that both companies expect to work and how people think they want to work. Do you think like with, with the nature of the business, your business and creativity and client engagement and things like that, what are some of the unique challenges that work any place really bring to the fore for you and GMR marketing? It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Um, and, and you have to be very intentional about yeah. what, what you're doing. I mean, yeah. we go back to March um, of 2020, Rudy Gobert day when he, when he grabbed the microphone and the world of sports shut down and yeah. we figured out literally in a weekend how to do it. And yeah. there was a point early in the spring of 2020 when Dropbox, and maybe you'll link this in the show notes, published an open source guide to the future of work, which we studied very carefully. And there was a reference point to Dropbox believing that the future of work was remote. And we, we took some cues from there, but really made the future of work from a GMR perspective, uniquely our own perspective. Mm -hmm. We are in the experience business. Yeah. And so we have branded our work modality, the any place workplace experience also has a cute acronym, AWE, but <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, you know, we are highly, highly intentional about the any place workplace experience, which provides story makers mm -hmm. optionality for in-person work, hybrid work or remote work. Yep. We still do have offices, uh, which we call experience centers and hubs. And so there's there's optionality, but the reality is in the remote environment, we have had to be extraordinarily intentional about yeah. communication, about platforms, about collaboration, about DE&I, about how to produce our outcome, which is largely intellectual capital. And there's some really challenging things about it, and there's some really powerful things about it. I it, it's, I know just given the size and the scope of GMR, it's got to be something. And I and I and I love the idea, and I love the recommendation about how intentional this is. You have to approach this shift in work and people's experience with how they engage with your company in really careful and thoughtful ways, and just not let it happen. Right. It's not something that you could just sort of say, good luck, uh, you know, come into the Zoom meeting when you're ready and we'll just call it a day. Right. And and it I think you also have to look at the demographics of the workforce, because old guys like you and me that have. Hey, 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 I, uh, you know, okay, I'm chronologically like <laughs> right. uh, that have had decades of, of experience working right. in an office we had the privilege of being able to leave a meeting mm -hmm. and ask a person that had more experience, like, Hey, what just happened in that right. meeting? What yeah. were the Break it down for me. Or nonverbal cues? You could walk to the parking lot. You could grab a beer, you grab a cup of coffee and the conversation or the analysis interpretation around the meeting would cont continue now you know for people who are just starting out in their careers and they're working remotely the meeting ends the teams or the zoom ends and they are there in their room staring at a wall and there's nobody to help them figure out what just happened so 
I think there's a difference too between younger employees starting their careers, people that have been at this a while, people that have been at this for a long time. Mm -hmm. So part of that intentionality is understanding the fact that workforces are not a monolith. And that doesn't just mean on age, that means across all spectrums, um, gender, um, all, all, all facets of diversity, mm -hmm. including the, you know, the really part, interesting part, which is neurodiversity and, and how people show up, whether they're introverts, extroverts, whether mm -hmm. they have an element of neurodiversity in their character. And so all of it has to be by design. So we've started off talking a lot about how this change in work, particularly over the last few years, has, has impacted GMR marketing. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, you're fortunate to work with some of the biggest brands in the world. And I'm wondering how their approach to the work has changed, not just in the last three years, but if you can even go back further and think about in the last 10, 15 years, how some of the brands and how you work with them, both as an agency and as someone who's geared towards and so monomaniacally focused on creating the best possible experience for brands, consumers, and using sports as that intersection. How's that changed in, in the last periods? Yeah, I would just say the level of sophistication in the sports business mm. has increased exponentially year over year. Mm. The number of different ways in which brands are looking at their relationships to sports properties, media, leagues, teams, players, mm. the mass influx and in, in the varieties of different ways in which we communicate across multiple platforms, traditional, non-traditional media, social media, and, and really how fast the tech revolution continues to accelerate around AR, VR, the metaverse, AI. It's just remarkable to mm -hmm. me how quickly the marketplace changes every year. And as a result, how we as consultants, brands as stewards of their marketing dollars and the rights holders who have to also be as innovative in order to create the commercial success in a world where there are more rights holders than ever. Mm -hmm. I think it's just really down to who can keep pace in this highly, highly sophisticated business. Adam, I wonder if you have advice for properties that are trying to get in front of decision makers at big brands and agencies like, like yours, right? We just talked about sports becoming so much more sophisticated and the brands becoming much more uh, smart in the way that they approach this kind of stuff. How do, how do properties stand out? How do they get noticed and, and avoid mistakes that you see that are kind of common? Well, the properties are also highly sophisticated yeah. and I think they are making significant changes year on year to be able to represent their IP, their commercial rights in a way that is seen, heard, valued by brands and the agencies that represent them. And what they're really doing right these days, in my mind, is focusing in on data, insights, and mm. research. Yeah. Uh, also, I, I can tell you, we have lost, um, and I know many agencies have lost people to 
the properties. I think the properties are placing a value and a premium on agency people because mm. agency people should be, if they're well-trained and well-experienced, really smart in terms of understanding how to approach brands with sponsorship, partnership, commercial opportunity. And and really, this this shouldn't be a huge surprise for anyone who's listening to this podcast because we're all in the same business together. But the the rights holders that are doing it the best are the ones that are coming not just with a perspective from their sports team league or property, but coming at it from the perspective of the brand that they're talking to and coming at it from the standpoint of a, a partnership and not a transaction. You would be surprised though, how many rights holders still come at this from the perspective of more of a transactional approach, but the ones that are bringing creativity and creativity backed by insight into the prospect partner or brand's audience and, and business are the ones that are really cracking the code the right way. I feel like the comment you made about properties hiring agency people gets clarified so much based on what you just said, right? Because what is an agency person but other than someone who sits between property and partner and helps solve that particular equation. They see it so clearly from both sides of the ball. It's no wonder then to that a that properties are going to be seeking those kinds of folks out because of their perspective. Yeah, hundred percent. And then and then you you add that experience together with data and insights, together with creativity, and that's how some of the best partnership conversations start. And and that's how they're unlocked. Look, I could name a bunch of names because a lot of people and a lot of rights holders are doing it well, but I think among the best in the business is the National Basketball Association mm -hmm. at the WNBA, right right with it as a combined offering into the marketplace. Um, City Football Group, I think, is at the top of their game, and there are others, but when you have rights holders that have humans that are cracking the code in which we, we just described. And we on the receiving end of those first outreaches, those first proposals, see and understand the intent and, mm -hmm. and the sophistication and the level of detail that's gone in even to first outreach. Yeah. You get, you get the sense that you're onto something. And like anything else, Dave, I mean, you, you know early on if it's gonna, if it's gonna work or not. And the way people behave in the courtship process, no different than in life, like interviewing <laughs> yeah. or dating, you know, they'll tell you everything about themselves in the courtship process. And, and you'll know then whether or not you're going to have a good partnership. Okay. I want to shift the conversation a little bit because we've spent a little bit of time sort of forgetting the framework of, of the agency and your, your perspective on, you know, both sides of the equation from the sponsor and your own experience and what the properties are up to. And I want to get a little bit more detailed into some of your experience because, you know, based on your position, how many, how many Olympics have you been to? Oh, man, I got to count. I've worked on every Olympics since 2000 Sydney. Okay. And I've been to most of them. Uh, there's a few that I've missed along the way. And that's summer and winter. So we're looking at an ordinal of about, I don't know, 10, 12 Olympics. Yeah, no, I, I've been, yeah, we'd have to count them up how many were in there. Do but... you, do you get a medal at some point? Do they, do they say, this is your 10th Olympics? You, you, you know, here's, here's your silver. 
<laughs> yeah, it comes in the form of uh, airline status, which I'm not sure is a real medal. <laughs> they let you fly the plane now, I'm assuming. Probably gets to that point. <laughs> but like, so I'm wondering, you know, the Olympics was obviously founded with a pretty lofty goal, right? Celebration of the human spirit. And I think in the last few cycles, there's been, not to use the airplane analogy, but there's been a bit of turbulence about that, right? Particularly when you think about who the host nations have been, um, and some, you know, let's call it what it is, oppression of that same human spirit. Now, someone who's been involved in the Olympics and marketing partnerships for over 20 years, do you have a sense if there's been an impact on the Olympic brand? And I guess in the follow-up to that would be, do sponsors need to play a role in helping steward that games and protecting that brand? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think we have to disassociate the to the best we can, mm-hmm. although it's hard. Yeah. The value of the Olympic rings from the host nations, because mm-hmm. we have been through some really difficult scenarios with host nations, you know, and a lot of human rights issues from Sochi to China mm-hmm. to South Korea, mm-hmm. North Korea, and the geopolitical um, surrounding, including Brazil in many mm-hmm. ways, in Rio is one thing. So what's happening with the local organizing committee and in a geopolitical sense certainly does have an impact on people's perceptions of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. But at a higher level than that, when you look at the Olympic rings and when you look at the Olympics through the lens of athletes and competition, there is still no better global property. Mm-hmm. There's still no better way to captivate a globe over a condensed time period in a, a concentrated media environment than the Olympics. And, and the sports stories, the human stories that result are second to none. Yeah. And, and yes, there are comings and goings with brands and sponsors that are involved in the Olympics from the top partner program at the IOC through to OCOGs and national organizing committees and down to brands interest in sponsoring athletes themselves. But Mm -hmm. I believe and and our clients who are involved in the broad Olympic ecosystem believe that it's still one of the most powerful properties out there. Do you approach the brands with recommendations on how to address issues as they arise? Because, you know, obviously every no, no sport is perfect and everything is, you know, it's very fluid and, and moments can change. The Olympics just have it on such a huge grand scale. Do you, which this kind of goes into a larger question about the nature of integration of politics and sports right now, but yeah. I'm wondering if you have to prepare your clients for that eventuality going in. 100%. So yeah. at GMR, Within our DEI guiding principles, one thing is never be neutral mm. on matters of human rights and inequity. And so that's amazing. That's right. As a human that's living in the world, as a executive at GMR Marketing and as a consultant to our brands, we are of the belief that brands do need to have and should take an active voice when there are matters of of human rights and inequity 
And I have a lot of stories that we can talk about, even going back to Sochi and mm. how we advised Visa to communicate and market around Sochi's position against the LGBTQ audience. Mm -hmm. um, and all the way through, there's a lot of examples, but I believe, Dave, it's my responsibility and, and GMR's responsibility to use our voice, use our understanding to influence brands to be as purposeful and as powerful as possible. And in some ways, that's going to mean doing what's right for their business, the just the real transactional side of what their products and services are, that that is powerful and purposeful. And in some cases, it, is, it, it, it means entering the arena in a broader sense to address and have a point of view on what's right and what's wrong. This hasn't been easy for brands in the past. I think, you know, the, the sports marketing world always goes back to the Michael Jordan trope of, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too. Right. But it feels like we're in a different time now where if you don't make a pointed or take a pointed position, that's almost the detrimental stand, right? It's, it's highly um, unique to the brand. And yeah. some are interested in being further in front of a conversation, mm -hmm. some are are less so. Yep. And, and and look, there's obviously the the heightened moment around Kaepernick and kneeling and, mm -hmm. and all of what was happening with the National Football League. There's been um, the, you know these seminal moments around George Floyd's murder and mm -hmm. how different sports teams and leagues you know led. And we talked earlier about how progressive and innovative the NBA is from a commercial perspective, but let alone how they reacted in the Orlando bubble and, and the platform they give their players. So I think it's irresponsible to sidestep the broader conversations that impact sports from mm -hmm. a social, political, geopolitical perspective and each of those conversations with brands is unique. Mm -hmm. Each needs to be finely tuned and organized to, to that brand's ethos and sensibility. But in every case, I will be at the table advocating for brands to do what is right. You know, one of the reasons I reached out to you about having this conversation was because of what you wrote following uh, the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Um, it was obviously a, a event that had a lot of attention paid to it for reasons that we're talking about right now. You wrote this fantastic article about your experience there. Um, and you kind of laid bare some of your own internal conflict about being there. And I loved the quote, I'm a capitalist at heart, but I also have a conscience. Um, you wrote it right after the World Cup. So I'm wondering, now that you've had a couple of months of distance from it, has has there been anything added to your perspective about that event and, and what transpired in your own response to it? For sure. I, I think about that all of the time. We, we were just talking about the power of the Olympics from a commercial and a branding perspective. I, I will concede to you in the audience listening that 
actually it's the FIFA World Cup that is my favorite event. Okay. I I love it the most as a human and as a fan. I, it also has this unbelievable commercial value and we bring a lot of GMR clients into the global football ecosystem. But mm. in, in specifics related to the World Cup in Qatar is a really hard event for me to work on and be part mm. of. Yeah. Prior to the pandemic, I was in the Middle East and in Qatar a number of times. I had to be very aware of my sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. I didn't have my wits about me in in a country that criminalizes being gay. Mm -hmm. You have to be smart uh, and you have to be wise and aware of your surroundings. And while FIFA was on the front side of saying this would be an event for all and an inclusive event for all, that didn't quite match up with the Qatari government, the Supreme Committee, and that's just one small slice of it. We also had the huge human rights travesty and inequity of migrant workers who were putting their life on the line to build stadiums and infrastructure in order for this country, one of the smallest and one of the richest, to produce this event. And mm -hmm. so there was a lot that I needed to sort of squint through, mm -hmm. um, a lot that just was not right for me about this event. Um, so much inequity, so many human rights problems. And then on a personal level, um, discrimination against the LGBTQIA plus audience. However, I, as you said, I, I have a business to run, I have clients yep. to serve, and, and I have a job to do. And so there's sort of this internal meter where I had to balance kind of my commercial needs and my role along with my conscience. And it was not a simple um, a line to walk, actually. Um, I think I, I did it. Mm -hmm. And but but I will I will you know even with a little perspective it's still sort of bifurcating your values uh, in in a sense in order to work in and around an event like that. Do you have I wonder if you have thoughts and recommendations for people who may also be experiencing a sort of a similar disassociation from their their work right when you are placed in a situation or an environment that is counterproductive to who you are as a person or strikes right at the heart of who you identify with how based on your experience in Qatar and how you managed that for yourself do you have recommendations and thoughts for other people who might be experiencing something similar I think it's so personal I think yeah. you just really have to sit with your own internal compass and your own personal value system and, and make a determination as to whether or not what your working in or around jives with your personal values. Mm. And, you know, in this case, for me, I felt like I could use my voice and my platform to, in some tiny way, shine a light on what was happening and, and share my experiences and not have to have a personal boycott or protest, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I, I do feel that I personally, my my agency, my clients and partners would in a different scenario, if, if something felt more 
egregious or mm-hmm. something that, that felt simply intolerable that I would have or, or anyone that worked at GMR um, or is associated with the kinds of people that I am associated with. Somebody needed to tap out or had a personal mm-hmm. reason for not being able to participate in something where their values were misaligned. I think that would be a, a conversation. There would probably be a lot of understanding around it. There's another part of the article that you bring up, and I'm going to I'm going to link to it in the description of this so people can can get to it. But there's another part of the article which also goes into the imperative of taking yourself out of these high end luxury sports experiences to take the event in as a true fan. Yeah, this is this is the conversation of the fan experience. Yeah, this is and this is absolutely what it is because as somebody who's involved in literally building experiential events for fans, you have to do that, don't you? This is my favorite parlor game. So when when those two words come up, the fan experience, it in any conference room at around any boardroom table, my my favorite thing to say is when is the last time any <laughs> of you, we executives <laughs> laid down your credential, woke up on an event day, downloaded the app, took the public transportation, and tried to consume the event as a fan. It it doesn't happen that much. A lot of the people who are opining on the fan experience aren't really having the fan experience. (laughs) They get to go in that ivory tower. Yeah, I try to force myself to do that, actually, at an Olympics and at a World Cup. And it's remarkable what happens when you do, when you're walking two miles to a venue, when you try to acquire an event ticket on the day of an event when you don't have a credential. And so one really does walk in the shoe of a fan when, 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 when you do that. And, and I think it's important that we do that from time to time. Yeah, there is. I mean, we we talked earlier about you know, particularly the nature of agencies is about a lot of it's about empathy, and if you have to have the experience of your audience in order to develop experiences for brand partners that are going to really be impactful and intuitive and align with where interest and experience lies. Yeah, exactly. So you were also kind enough recently to send over a video of an interview you did down in LA with Ezra and, and Clayton Freck. And I'm going to link to that too, because first of all, Ezra, who is 17, 17 years old, correct? 17 years old is, is mind blowingly well-spoken. Um, and Ezra is a member of team USA and competes in the Paralympics. Uh, he does long jump and high jump. And he is, motivated to bring Paralympic sports to a next level. Like he wants, you know, to be the catalyst for helping do so. And the video is fantastic. I'm just curious, how did you first get connected to them? And how did you get motivated by adaptive sports? Sure. First, shout out Sports Business Journal and their foresight to have a diversity, equity, and inclusion conference Mm. called All In. And it's been a privilege to be part of their advisory board and to be able to help shape the the content around that conference. Um, You're right. Ezra is remarkable. I I think that's (laughs) the only way to put it. I I encourage everybody to, to listen to his story and the story of his father, Clayton. I was 
fortunate enough to be introduced to Clayton and Ezra through a former colleague of mine who I have a lot of love for, um, despite how life has traveled for both of us. And she first introduced me to Clayton and Ezra, and I got to know Angel City Sports and Angel City Games through her. And over the course of a number of years, I've maintained that connection. And so when we had the opportunity to shape the SPJ All-In Conference, mm. knowing that it was going to be in LA, we knew we wanted to have a Paralympic yep. lens to it. And we spoke to our friends at LA 28, and they were actually the ones that recommended Ezra and Clayton. Ezra will clearly be a face of the U.S. Paralympic team for, for many, many years to come. Clearly. <laughs> yeah, when when LA 28 had, had recommended them and, and I was able to lean back on the fact that I had known these guys for a few years based on a previous relationship, it, it just sort of all came in, in a really unique way. And it was a real privilege to sit and chat with them for half an hour, but even more so, Dave, to be around members of the disability and adaptive sports community that had come to All In to support them. Mm. I learned a ton and 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 I'm continuing to learn a ton about the disabled community, adaptive sports, and, and certainly many of our clients who are Olympic and Paralympic clients who have, have been leading that conversation. Do you think there? I mean, it, this feels like right now uh, for sports, there's a so much opportunity right now, particularly for sports who haven't been traditionally considered part of the big four or five. And I'm wondering if there's other sports out there that provide a template for adaptive sports and how they can go from something that's people maybe pay attention to every four years to something that's more embedded into the popular sports experience on the day and today what where do they look for ah that's how we want to do it yeah i mean it's a it's a it's a great question and and i will be vulnerable with you in the audience i'm still learning a lot mm -hmm. and so what i know to be sure about the disabled community plus sports is it's just filled with intersectionality there is no monolith at all mm. um, what i know to be also true is that when we think about DE&I, the disability conversation is a distant fifth. I and mean, we're mm -hmm. talking about black and brown, we're talking about Latinx, we're talking about women, we're talking about LGBTQIA+. These are all really imperative conversations. Yeah, The conversations in the DEI world about disability are not raised up the food chain the same way the rest are. And when we Think about disability, I think about it as disability plus because mm -hmm. all people who have disabilities are then also something else. So it, it, it can be a, a supercharged conversation. And so when you think about it in terms of sports, right, the obvious place to go is adaptive sports and Paralympics, but mm -hmm. everyone needs to be involved in this conversation. So when we think about disability, in relationship to adaptive sport and mm. we think about it on the long arc to the la 28 paralympics yeah the tent is open dave mm. and what i know to be true is that brands need to enter this space with humility with curiosity entering with the idea that they can make an impact because brands aren't really in this space, particularly at the grassroots and at the adaptive sports level, mm. 
and I know for sure brands that that wake up to this opportunity now and see it as a connection point out through the Paris 24 Olympics and out to the LA 28 Olympics are going to be the ones that will have really helped make a difference. Adam Lippard, Chief Partnership Officer of GMR Marketing. Um, I, you know, these are my favorite kinds of conversations. So much to think about, so much excellent perspective and unique perspective that you're bringing to the table and the thoughtfulness with which you do so. Um, so I appreciate it. Um, but before I let you go, I need to put you into the lightning round. That's something that's going to happen right now. These are a few questions I'm going to ask you to answer them as quickly as you possibly can. First thing that comes to your mind, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do this thing. You've been to a, a whole bunch of Olympic Games. What other sport than modern pentathlon would you eliminate? <laughs> uh, wow. Are we talking about Olympic sports? Olympic sport. Um, That's a lightning round, Adam. Badminton. Oh, it's tough. I enjoy a good backyard badminton. North is the most so 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 the 2022 World Cup was sort of famous for not just VIP experiences, but for V VIP experiences. What was the most over the top thing you saw? It had to have been the stadiums that I was in. Just you know, walking out onto midfield into these things, it felt like you know luxury seats and suites with televisions and red carpets. It was. It was really a VIP experience, second to none. Okay. Your favorite sport not played with a ball? Swimming. Summer's coming up soon. Is it the best season or the worst season? The best season. Oh, okay. Controversial take. Okay. So as discussed earlier, you were a broadcast journalism major at Syracuse University and won the Bob Costas Scholarship for most outstanding broadcaster your senior year. What sport would you least like to do play-by-play for? Volleyball. <laughs> I have to explain that one to me later. In your, in your, in your very, very best play-by-play voice, please say, Dave Almey, this is the best podcast I've done this week. Dave Almey, this is the best podcast I've ever done in my career. <laughs> Adam Lippard, Chief Partnership Officer of GMR Marketing. Thanks for spending the time, man. You got it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the One-on-One Sports Business Conversations Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we always appreciate a subscribe, share, comment, or like. And don't forget, you can always find past episodes at abcpartners.com slash podcast. This podcast is written, produced, edited, and hosted by Dave Almey. And theme music was composed by Scott Holmes.